0: Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We are a movement of men pursuing faith, character, personal growth, and meaningful friendships. If you'd like to learn more about us and our mission to rebuild the American family one man at a time, please visit us at heartofaman.org. We hope you enjoy this lesson from our series called Genesis, Why Is It This Way? In this week's text, the story transitions from Jesus promising Isaac's birth to And calling out Sarah for laughing at this promise to Abraham walking alongside Jesus and two angels. It's pretty cool. Jesus rhetorically asks the angels whether he should hide from or share with Abraham what he's about to do to the city of Sodom. And the question I want to start with, which we discussed in our lesson tonight, is why did Jesus choose to share this with Abraham? If Sodom and his neighbors were so evil, why not just do what you're gonna do? Why not just clear them out and move on? Why go through this effort of, of inviting and bringing Abraham into the conversation? As I read and prayed over this text, there are three main reasons which God placed on my heart and my mind. The first is that God wants Abraham's heart to be broken for those who are destined for destruction and for Abraham to get engaged in their salvation. The second is that God wants Abraham to see and feel the pain of what happens when sexuality goes unbridled. And third, God wants this story to convict Abraham to lead his family towards righteousness. And he uses Lot as an example of how not to lead my aim tonight is that you and I would wake up to the sin that's within us and in the lives of the people around us, and that we would fight for the salvation of those around us, that we would ruthlessly bridle our sexuality for God's purpose, and that we would fervently lead our families towards the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Holy Father, Thank you for this time. Thank you for this word. Lord, I sensed even as I prepared this message and even as we sat in the group tonight, there's a weight in this text. Lord, the world knows it. The world talks about Sodom and Gomorrah as something of weight. And I'm praying that we wouldn't walk out of here without feeling the weight. Lord, there's a reason for it. And so let us not gloss over it. I pray that each heart in here, including mine, would feel that weight, and that we would be changed, Lord, that we would each walk out of here, as my co-leader said, maybe a little better, but hopefully a lot better than when we came in here, Lord. That's my prayer. And so move our hearts, move me out of the way. Let the men here hear your words and not see or hear me at all. Please, God, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, the first section of this text is Genesis 18, 16 through 33. It's Abraham walking with God and interceding for Sodom. The key principle is this. God wants his people to be sensitive to sin and actively fighting for the salvation of those around us. Now, when you take a closer look at Abraham's life, in one regard, you see a man who obeys God when he speaks, who honors God, and who calls upon the name of the Lord. But in parallel, I see a man who at times demonstrated a cold and selfish heart towards his own family and towards the people around him. Here's a few examples. In Genesis 12, as Abraham enters Egypt, there's two people on the receiving end of this selfishness. The first is his wife, Sarah. In an effort to protect himself, Abraham instructs Sarah to lie to Pharaoh By telling him she is Abraham's sister and not his wife. In this single move, Abraham demonstrates a blatant disregard for four important things about his wife. Her character, her faith in him as her husband, her physical well-being, and her emotional and spiritual health. The second person who experiences Abraham's coldness is Pharaoh himself. By deceiving Pharaoh and allowing him to take Sarah as his wife, Pharaoh and his family are subjected to plagues. And at the end of the ordeal, Abraham gives no sign of remorse relating to the pain and suffering that he brought upon Pharaoh and his family. Another example of this is in Genesis 13. There's this dispute that arises between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. And rather than peacefully finding a way to keep them unified, Abraham recommends that he and Lot separate, and and he allows Lot to choose where he'll go. Seems seems kind, seems generous, but as I stared at this more, it actually made me really sad because what the text shows us is that they knew that Sodom was, they already knew it it was a filthy and sinful place, and yet... Abraham just sends him off into the land of the wicked with no, no caution or no warning whatsoever that we know of. And so what do we see God here doing here in Genesis 18? <clears throat> it's a process that he initiated in Genesis 14 of softening Abraham's heart towards the lost. In Genesis 14, Abraham's he's living his life. He's got all this wealth. He's thinking about his future son and He's showing very little interest in the condition of his nephew. And it isn't until Lot has been taken captive and is being carried off as a prisoner that Abraham wakes up and decides to go get involved in the life of his nephew. And this feels eerily similar to many of us Christians today. And God convicted me here of this yesterday as I was working through this text. I have cousins, uncles, aunts, and grandparents who are unquestionably lost. And the truth is, this is true. I rarely, if ever, even pray for them, let alone make an intentional face-to-face effort to help them, my own family. And thank God, in Genesis 18, God is giving Abraham And he's given you and me another chance. In Jude, the writer says this, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And then he says this, and have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. In Genesis 18, God is politely presenting Abraham with the opportunity to wake up to the sin and get engaged in the righteousness and the salvation of the people who are around him. And thankfully, Abraham responds. He hears God's warning and he humbly does the only thing left that he still can do, he draws near to the Lord and pleads on behalf of the people in and around Sodom that he, God would spare their lives. God is showing you and he's showing me that he wants his people, he wants us to have hearts that are broken by the wickedness of the world. When we see our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and our brothers and sisters in Christ being drawn towards the gate of Sodom, or, the, or, or have become citizens of Sodom. What does he want us to do? He wants us to cry for them, not ignore them or criticize them. We ought to pray earnestly and insistently for their salvation. And beyond what Abraham did, we should be actively pursuing them, spending time with them, loving them, and compelling them to abandon the road that they're on and join the path that leads to life. What is the posture of your heart towards the people in your life who are lost or on the path of destruction. The second section of this text is Genesis 19, one through 25. And God rescues Lot and he destroys Sodom. The key principle is this. Man's sexuality, devoid of God, leads to chaos, evil, destruction, and eternal death. All right, I'm gonna ask I ask you guys just to take a step back. Go a little higher up with me. And let's, I want to look together at, uh, at the key message that God continually gives to Abraham, starting back at his very first call. There's a, there's a thread that runs through Abraham's life, and I really want to focus on that. So if you look at Genesis 12, uh, verses 2 through 3 say it first, I will make of you a great nation, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In verse seven, then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your offspring, I will give this land. Uh, 13, 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. And in 15, four through five, he says, this man shall not be your heir for your own, ver- your own son shall be your heir. Promise after promise, there's one specific element of Abraham's being, which God intends to use and through which he intends his blessings to flow. And what is that? He calls it out in Genesis 17, 9 through 11. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. I know you guys are like, I thought we made it through the circumcision chapter without incident, and I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry, because this is so imperative. We cannot blow past this we cannot breeze past this because this ties directly into this story about Sodom think about it you guys God could have chosen literally anything anything to be the sign of the covenant right Noah, you've got you've got the rainbow right I mean he could have, a tattoo a haircut anything God could have chosen to say that's my sign of my covenant with you that my blessing is going to flow through you but what does God choose He intentionally chose circumcision of the male reproductive organ to be the sign. Why? This sequence of chapters placing circumcision in chapter 17, the promise of Isaac's birth in 18, and then the destruction of Sodom in 19 highlights these two critical parallel concepts. The first is that a man whose sexuality is under God's authority and control, will bring life, promise, and blessing to his wife, his family, and to the world. And the second is that a man whose sexuality is devoid of God and is set on selfish gratification results in sin, chaos, and death. This message about Sodom is one that we as men, you as men, I'm imploring you that we have this brutally in our minds, When you look at this text, it's unclear what other specific types of wickedness or evil had overtaken Sodom. But the one thing we absolutely know, which God intentionally highlights, is that their sexuality had reached a point where it had no boundaries, no morality, and was completely depraved. And at that moment, God says, no more, no more, no more. This will not continue. In that moment, God says, this is done. I'm done with you. In March, (laughs) shifting gears, in March, my wife and I had the immense joy of learning that we conceived of our third child, a son due to be born on Thanksgiving Day. And we're incredibly grateful for this blessing. But there's an internal struggle that, or the interim struggle that we're facing right now and it's this, because of some health issues related to the pregnancy, my wife and I are unable to engage intimately with each other without causing my wife intense physical pain. And so for the past seven, seven and a half months, I've been brought back to a place that's similar to many of what you single guys in here are facing. <laughs> I have an intense sexual desire and a God-given need to exercise that desire, but no healthy outlet. I'm looking at my wife, who I love dearly, and who I'm deeply attracted to, but I know if I, in, if I insist on what I want from her, it will be at a horrible cost and pain to her. And at the same time, if I take that sexual desire somewhere else, lusting over other women, pornography, masturbation to another woman other than my wife, our marriage, our trust, Our family will never be the same. So men, if you're a servant of Yahweh, God's calling you out and he's calling me out. Genesis 17, he says, he who is eight years old among you shall be circumcised. He starts young with us, guys. He's got to get this thing under wraps. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. He's talking beyond the flesh. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The man who refuses to place his sexuality under God's control will not only create a wake Of brokenness and death, but he has broken God's covenant and is aiming himself towards the gates of hell. This is the message of Sodom. This is the message. And so, in the midst of preparing to teach on this very text, I was faced with a situation that forced me to ask myself the same question To whom will my sexuality yield? To myself or to God? There have been very few times in my life where I've genuinely felt as hopeless as I did in this time frame. I'd gone around and around in my mind, thinking of ways to make it work with my life and the devil filling my mind with a lot of other ways that I could get my needs met. And so I'm I'm sitting there in my home office and man, I'm thinking about what I should do. What I could do, what I should do, what I shouldn't do. And I realized, man, I don't have a way out. I don't see a way out. I literally am sitting there like, (laughs) I don't know a way out. And some of you may be thinking, like, man, dude, it's like, just control yourself, you know, like, relax. It's not that big of a deal. But honestly, guys, I was in this place where I'm like, I'm getting worried. I'm getting worried I'm going to do something stupid because I don't, I can't, I don't think I can, tr- can control this. And so I gave up, <laughs> but hopefully not like you think. <laughs> I looked up at the sky and I told God, I literally sat in my desk chair and I just said, hey God, uh, I got nothing right now. I literally have nothing, Lord. I, I don't know what to do, um. I literally don't see a way out of this. And then I did, I did two things. I got down on my hands and knees on my floor in my office, and I just begged God. And I said, God, man, you gotta help me. I love my wife. I desire to do the right thing, but this desire is destroying me. But I said, God, I will not take the path that will destroy my marriage. And I said, You gotta help me. Come on. I'm trying to do the right thing, but you gotta help me out, man you got to help me out here, God. I'm, you have to. And then I did one other thing. I didn't just do that. I texted a group of guys who, who I know and who know me and who I trust. After months of trying to just sort through this by myself, I texted him. I told them what was going on. I just said, guys, can you pray for me, please? And the text started flowing in. I'm praying for you, man. I'm praying for you. I'm with you. I hurt with you. And I'm telling you guys, it was crazy. It was so crazy. In that moment, literally in that instant, my wife wakes up every single morning. She goes down at a a certain time. She comes up at a certain time. 7 AM, she's back upstairs. She goes and showers. But today, that day, that day, she came up early. I don't know why. And she walks into my office and asks me a question she never asks me at 7 AM in the morning. She just said, how are you doing today? Weird question for a day that's just started. But it gave me the opportunity and the courage to be totally honest with my wife. And I just said, sweetheart, I'm I'm struggling right now. This desire for you is tearing me up, and I don't know what to do. And she cried with me. She told me she loved me. She was hurting with me, and that she was committed to battle through this with me together however we could. I added this scripture into this earlier today or or yesterday, and I I kind of cringed to add it because it's become so cliche, but it's not cliche. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that isn't common to man. And here's the kicker. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to do what? Not to get out, to endure it, to endure it. It was God who provided me the way to endure it, not me. When I finally stopped trying to manage my desire for sex myself and turned it over to God, he took it back and he used it to bring blessing to me, to my wife, to my family, to my friends who were supporting me, and hopefully to you guys. That's what he intends sexuality, our sexuality to do, to bring blessing, not destruction. So what will it take for you to turn your sexuality over to God? It's not a one-day thing. It's every day turning it over to him. Who will my sexuality yield to, me or to God? And it's worth it. I promise it's worth it. All right, here's the final section Genesis 19, 26 through 38, it's the outcome of Lot and his family. This is the key principle. After God himself, your influence over your family as its leader and as its husband and father is the single most important factor in the health and success of your family. So let's go back to where we started in this text Genesis 18, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? For I have chosen him, that what? That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. By doing what? By doing righteousness and justice. Why? So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. That's what he wants us to do. And so as leaders our leadership in forging a healthy family must be built on three key priorities kept in this specific order. Number one is loving and fearing God. Number two is loving and understanding your wife. And number three, last, is loving and disciplining your children. In this section of the text, my hope is that each man in here will see and embrace this truth. While we cannot and should not try to force our wives or our children to love Jesus, changing the heart is God's territory. What we can do, here's what we can do. What we can do is lead, love, and engage with our family in ways that provide them with every opportunity possible to see and experience God an abundance of context in hopes that they will choose to love and follow Jesus despite our failures, and we will fail often. So let's look at the story of Lot and how he failed through the lens of these godly priorities, and let us consider how we should be leading as men of God. Priority number one is loving and fearing God. And what do we see Lot doing? Lot separates himself due to conflict from Abraham. And Abraham was arguably the only God-fearing person in Lot's life. And he separates himself from him. Lot moves to a city in which, which is known for being evil and rampant with sin. Lot ignores and accepts the wickedness of his culture And when God speaks to Lot through angels, he only partially responds and with much resistance. So as followers of Yahweh, the leaders of our family, what should we be doing? Proverbs 14.22 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Men of God, Men of God resolve conflicts and keep ourselves connected with other godly men. That's what we do. We resolve conflict and we stay connected. We don't isolate ourselves. Men of God are wary of the culture in which we're replacing our family and are ready and willing to change schools, jobs, neighborhoods, whatever it is, if it's clear that our decisions are exposing our family to wickedness that is outside of God's plan. Men of God have the courage to be moved by God's truth and to speak and stand boldly with love and, and not hate for righteousness before it's too late. And men of God, when we hear God call us or warn us, we don't drag our feet, we move. Luke eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus says, blessed are those who hear the, God of, the word of God and follow it. I want that. Priority number two is loving and understanding your wife. As far back as the time of of Abraham and still today, the tendency for husbands and fathers is to focus on our kids over our wife. In Abraham's time, he depicts it perfectly. The focus of his life is on his son, his offspring. He's all jazzed up about his son, his son, his son, my offspring. And at the same time, we see him frequently devaluing Sarah so much so that he sells her out, first to Abraham in chapter 12 and then later to Abimelech in chapter 20. And the irony of this is that if Abraham so badly and desperately wanted a son, what is the way by which a son would come to Abraham? Through his wife. And so, take note of this. In the very laws of nature, which God established, your wife must come before your kids. She must. And so, what do we see Lot doing in his marriage? Two things. The first is that Lot invites in and cares for house guests without the support and help of his wife. And Lot abandons his wife as destruction comes, running ahead of her and leaving her to her own devices and to her ultimate demise. And so again, as followers of Yahweh, as the leaders of our family, what should we be doing? Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word. And in 1 Peter 3, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Men of, God are, men of God are one with our wives, and we understand our wives. We work hard to learn and care for her fears, her passions, her doubts, so that this is the key. When God calls, we can answer together we can answer together. Men of God do not leave our wives behind. Men of God also love our wives and die for them in order that they may be sanctified. As the leaders of our homes, we must die to our fears, our hobbies, our desires, and even our dreams so that our wives will have every opportunity to feel God's love through us and to eagerly obey his commands. And Jesus is the model. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the calling. Finally, priority number three is loving and disciplining your children. And what do we see Lot doing? Lot sacrifices his daughters for his own sake and for the sake of strangers. Lot condones the marriage of his daughters to the pagan men of their society. Lot is unaware of the hurts and fears of his daughters. And lastly, Lot is unrepentant towards his failures and the impact on his family. So finally, as followers of Yahweh and the leaders of our families, what should we be doing? Scripture says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And then in Proverbs, it says, train up a child in the way he should go. And I love this. Even when he's old, he won't depart from it. Men of God, prioritize the hearts and lives of our kids over the approval of others and over our own personal agendas. We sacrifice ourselves for their well-being, not the other way around. Men of God, by God's wisdom, tearfully, lovingly, and unashamedly call our children to righteousness and warn them, of the detriments of wickedness. Men of God are invested in the thoughts, emotions, and cares of our children, not just their salvation. We care about all that's going on within our kids, not just if we can get them to heaven. And finally, men of God humbly admit to our children when we have failed them asking for their forgiveness and seeking to fix what we broke. That's what men of God do. Psalm 112 says this, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land and the generation of the upright will be blessed. What in your leadership of your marriage or your household is God calling you to change today? As I studied this and thought about it over the weekend, God showed me that I was choosing to watch college football over spending time with my two beautiful daughters who were dying to be with their daddy. What in your leadership of your marriage or your household is God calling you to change today, tonight? So in conclusion, the calling is simple, but it's not easy. Be tender hearted towards the lost, fighting for their salvation. Be tenacious towards your sexuality, relentlessly turning it over to God. And lastly, be a God-fearing leader who loves God, who dies for his wife, and who humbly cares for and disciplines his children. This is God's message. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this word. Lord, um, you promise us that when your word goes out, it won't come back void. And so I pray as each man in here um, ingests whatever they heard, it's your word, Lord. And I pray that it would move each of them towards you, Father. And if it doesn't, God, I pray for their soul. God, I pray that the men in this room would reach out to that brother and would have a heart that breaks for him, Lord. Help us to leave here and turn our sexuality to you. God, we need you desperately. Move in our hearts and we love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.